0: Any picky eaters in here? People willing to admit that? I see some smiles already. Uh, Growing up, I didn't have the luxury to be a picky eater. I had a stepdad who was a little bit strict, and I remember vividly one day eating, and uh, there was something on my plate I wasn't eating. And he reached under with my bare foot and jabbed my foot with a fork, you know? So after that time, I was definitely gonna eat whatever was on the plate. Now, disregard that parenting aspect. Don't apply that, you know, that's not the point of this. Uh, but I never thought about having the luxury of like ordering a special hamburger until I met my wife and definitely after having our kids. And I realized, wow, they, uh, they have some very particular desires, some, they, some pickiness in their eating. I learned very hard, the very hard way, and with some reordering and sometimes throwing away food that they won't eat certain things in a particular way unless they had exactly how they wanted. And we're not talking gourmet. Food here. Well, I'm talking about McDonald's dollar menu. Okay, <laughs> it's got to be a very particular way. We have one child who he wants the chicken sandwich, but only the bun and only the chicken patty. That's it. Nothing else, right? Another child wants extra mayo, like dripping with mayo. And if you get those mixed up, they're not eating and they're not happy. I just didn't understand what was going on here. This is kind of crazy. Sounds kind of gross to me, but that's what they want. Uh, and then. Um, Sometimes one orders their McDouble with no onions and no pickles. And apparently, even if a drop of pickle juice gets on that sandwich, he's not going to eat it. You know, he he senses it, smells it, it tastes like pickle here. It's just interesting that they are so picky that way. But that's how that that works out. Um, So I've learned to understand their preferences. And when I order these things, I have to order them very carefully. Otherwise, I'm ordering again. I've learned and remembered the hard way about those orders. Some of you guys know my brother, Jeremy. Uh, he's worked for me at different times, come to our church at different times, and uh, many of you know him. He's just this big hulking sort of a guy, really strong and powerful, but he does not like spicy food. One day he was at my house, but I'm making him a sandwich, offer him a sandwich, and I know that he hates spicy food. But I've got some horseradish in my fridge, I just a little bit of it, and this is the fancy stuff. I mean, this is the stuff that, it feels like a nuclear bomb just goes off in your sinuses. You know what I'm talking about? We're just like inflamed. So I put a little bit on a sandwich and sure enough, that's his very first bite. Very first bite of the sandwich, he bites into it and there it is, his face is bright red. I think his eyes are crossing because of the detonation going on in in his sinuses. The worst part of his pain is me laughing hilariously, you know, at his reaction there. And he's just, I'm just watching him and he can't do anything about it because he's, you know, in pain and torture. That was okay because I know him. I know his preferences. And I knew that he could take the joke. He could handle that and we would have a good laugh afterwards. And I assured him the rest of the sandwich is untainted. The rest of the sandwich, you can eat that, no problem. And it was a funny event because I know him. I know his likes. I know his dislikes. And he understood that I knew him too. And as odd as that is for a sibling way to show love and care and that sort of understanding. Well, this morning I want to refresh you with something similar in the sense that I want to encourage you By assuring you that God knows you. God knows you. Better than a joking sibling, (laughs) better than a parent or a spouse, God knows you intimately and completely. So this morning we will be in Psalm 139, a favorite psalm of God's chosen people. Those that love the Lord and love his word often find themselves in Psalm 139. So work your way there with me. Here we have the psalmist, and the psalm is attributed to David, so we'll assume that it's David who's writing this psalm for us from his experiences. He gives us images, beautiful pictures of God's personal knowledge of you individually. The psalm writes it from his perspective, me and I and my, but we can remember this as you. This is God's word to you. So this morning I want you to understand three, three, three things from this psalm. And it really does, it breaks down into four different sections with three key things, key, uh, key um, uh, teachings. And we can summarize those theologically as God's omniscience, His omnipresence, and His omnipotence. But I'll say it this way, in verses 1 through 6, God knows you. God knows you. Verses 7 through 12, God surrounds you. And verses 13 through 16, God created you. Something impossible for people to do, something impossible for us to do, and yet God, in his omnipotent power, was able to do that. And finally, in the verses 17 through 24, what's our reaction? How do we respond to such knowledge, such power, and such presence of God? If you're not there already, turn to Psalm 139. I've I've just given you the basic outline there, and it breaks down to this idea that God knows everything. God is everywhere, and God is able to do everything. Read with me Psalm 139, the first little strophe here, verses 1 through 6. And as I'm reading this, pay attention to this idea of knowledge. Look at all the different words that our psalmist uses for God's knowledge of him. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. Isn't this incredible? God's knowledge of us, his understanding is deep, it's wide, and it's varied. Seven, seven different phrases here, five different words to express God's knowledge of us. David ponders God's knowledge of him. And he opens up essentially his thesaurus and he says, I'm going to figure out every word I can use and describe God's understanding of me. He uses everything in his whole arsenal of description there. This word searched, oh God, you've searched me and know me. It can refer to the initial phases of a search or the end result of when somebody has searched something. But it's always connoting a diligent effort. It's always pointing somebody, difficultly probing into a matter and researching it, not just coming up with facts and figures. Oftentimes, it refers to a person's character or feelings that are being probed. This word, know. It means understand. It it means the idea of, of understanding like an ability or being able to perceive something. And knowledge here is the general description of the process by which somebody gains knowledge. Understanding. Oftentimes, through experience with objects and circumstances. What is searched here? It's the psalmist. It's the individual. It's the one writing this, saying that God knows me. He scrutinizes in the NAS. He discerns in the NIV. He searches out in the ESV, our path and our lying down. He then knows the direction you're going during the day, right? That's what he talks about. He knows the path at night when you're lying down in private apart from others, What we see here, I've got to give you just a little bit of Hebrew background, okay? So don't go crazy. It's just a little word. I'm going to give you a little bit of poetry. This is poetry. Interestingly, interestingly, when the psalms were written, many of them were sung out loud. Uh, I'm not going to sing this for you. That would be horrendous. But there's a lot of things in this psalm that tell us beauty, the way that the psalmist would think and express things. And there's one phrase here called a merism. I've been talking about this with our youth group. We're going through Genesis, and Genesis begins with this mirrorism. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They're polar opposites, like an A to Z. It's like, uh, you know, the alphabet. And my joke is, you know, we have A to Z rentals here. Have you ever been to A to Z rentals and asked them for an A? I'd like an A. That's a dumb dad joke. No, we don't rent A's. We rent things that start with A, like axes. And I called them. I said, do you really have things that start with Z? I mean, do you really rent stuff that starts with a Z? Yeah, we got these zip screens. Okay, so they do. But what's the focus of A to Z rentals? Not that they rent axes and zip screens. What are they trying to explain? We rent it all. Whatever we got, whatever you need, we got it. Now, of course, it's not inclusive, but but that's the idea. Everything. Our psalmist understands Hebrew language, and he writes Hebrew language in such a way to say, listen, God knows everything. God knows all about me. And so he uses these polar opposites. What does he say? When I sit down and when I rise up, literally dwelling and walking. He searches out my path and my lying down. When I'm going on the path and when I'm lying down, he uses these polar opposites to say, listen, God knows everything. Yes, the beginning and the end, but everything in between. Fantastic merism. We'll see this several times all the way throughout and understand how the psalmist is using, using these polar opposites to get the emphasis, everything in between, God knows. God is there what the psalmist is saying, that God intimately is acquainted with every single aspect. I like how NAS sums that up, intimately acquainted with our ways. He knows us so well that even before we say something, he understands what we're about to say. He knows it all. This knowledge of God that He has for us, uh, sometimes it seems constraining. Sometimes it seems even fearful that it's almost like He's surrounding me or he has His hand clamped upon me, hemmed on me, like we can't escape from that piercing, trying eye of God. And maybe the psalmist feels that way initially, like there's no way that he can hide from God. And this for some can actually be quite frightening. If you live a life that is in contrary to the God of the universe, if you live a life that is going against his plans and his attributes, and if you willfully are sinning against him, that is a dangerous place to be. And I come to this psalm and I'm amazed that God knows me intimately. To think about all the struggles I have in my own life, my own mind, and I don't like myself sometimes too. And to think that God sees all of my intentions, the good and a lot of the bad, he sees my desires, he sees my reactions, and what I'm amazed by is it doesn't kill me instantly. That he doesn't just strike me dead. I mean, that would be the thing that his righteousness would do. But no, in his love, in his care, in his concern, in his loving fatherly heart for me, and his gracious patience, he allows me to live allows me to go on and understand. But David's response is actually different than that. Notice in verse 10, what does he say? Uh, Sorry, verse 5, but also verse 10. In verse 5 he says, You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. That's repeated similar idea in verse 10. Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. When we talk about God's hand in the scripture, it's his hand of blessing. God's hand is upon the psalmist, his hand of comfort, his hand of guidance, his hand of love, and again, a mirrorism in front of and behind of. Everywhere I go, God's hand alone is on me. God understands the psalmist. He understands you because he has undergone a diligent, difficult search. He understands your character and your feelings. But he doesn't know you just like an inanimate object. I mean, I know my tools and I know the vehicles I have, and, you know, I know my sock drawer, as messy as that might be. It's not an inanimate object. God knows you personally and intimately, like an intimate friend or a family member who has gone through the time to observe and reflect and to search you out. His response, verse 6. Such knowledge, it's too wonderful for me, for me. There's no way I can even comprehend this. What an amazing God we serve. Reminds me of Romans 11:33. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his presence. Uh, some of you here might know or remember Peter Badgett. you remember Peter Badgett. Uh, this interesting guy. He was a mentor. Jack, is, yeah, I see the smiles. You guys know Peter. Uh, he, was a, he was a mentor and a, a guy early on in my Christian life and uh, it taught me a lot of things and a good friend at the same time too. And he would do funny things like one time he invited me over to somebody else's house for dinner and that's what Peter would do. You know, he's always looking for a free meal and he drug me along to this other person's house, which is kind of cool, kind of awkward too. Well, <laughs> We're there and I see there's a birthday cake on the table and I'm thinking, well, it would have been nice, Peter, to tell me that there's a birthday party so I could have at least gotten a card or a gift or something like that. But as we're talking about the party, it seemed like Peter was pulling another joke, like he's doing another practical joke on me or something like that because I come to realize these people thought it was my birthday. (laughs) (laughs) Let me tell you, if you want to surprise somebody for their birthday, throw them a birthday party, not on their birthday. That is a huge surprise, by far the biggest birthday surprise I have ever had. And we're looking around like, guys, it's it's not my birthday. (laughs) They're like, what, really? It's not my birthday, sorry. (laughs) It was pretty awkward, it was pretty uh, funny, uh, but it was interesting, it was weird. I'm thinking, and if you know Peter, that's the sort of thing that happens when you're around Peter. But what I did like is that they cared for me, that they're showing care and concern and interest, but I'm thinking, Look, it's not that hard to figure out somebody's birthday. (laughs) I mean, you can really do that. God is so different, right? He cares, but he knows intimately, and he never gets anything wrong. He knows your birthday, right? He also knows your death day. He knows the end from the beginning, and he knows it all. This knowledge, this knowledge sometimes about God's understanding of us, it might cause some people to flee. Well, maybe I can physically leave God. Maybe I can run away from Him. Well, then you realize pretty quickly, if you're astute theologically, I can't run from Him. But maybe you can make your life busy. Maybe I can just be distracted, escape God by being busy with other things. David, David I think, entertains those thoughts, and he realizes that God is everywhere. That's our next section here, verses 7 through 12. God is everywhere. Notice the skin. Verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in shield, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Very interesting. No place that the psalmist could go, right? He talks about this aspect of, where can I go from your spirit? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to Sheol, you're there. A little bit of a difficulty here, and now this is psalms. It's not necessarily doctrine in that sense, and so we have an option, I think, for interpretation. When he's talking about the heavens, there's multiple options about the heavens. It could be, you know, literally where God dwells, up in the highest heavens. Well, obviously we would think God is there, But it could be just the sky. It could just be where the birds fly and things like that. Either one of those is amazing because our psalmist couldn't do that. He could by no means go to heaven. He could by no means, didn't have an airplane, couldn't fly up into the sky. But he can see those birds and he can see the sky and he can see a place. I can't even go there. but God's there. And then he's talking about Sheol. That could be just the place of the grave. could be where people die and under the ground. could be that place of the dead also. Either way, either interpretation works for what our psalmist is saying. Even in the highest sky, I can't go there. Even in the lowest part of the earth, I can't go there. If I could and I fled there, God is still there. He's still there. Here follows also another beautiful picture of God's presence. Again, a mirrorism, high and low. But this one is beautiful, this wings of the dawn or wings of the morning. If uh, you're a hunter here, you might have experienced it. You're all here, so you're not hunting today on a Sunday. But anybody go hunting yesterday, get up bright and early, willing to admit it? Yeah. Uh, no. Okay. Nobody. Or not willing to admit it anyways. But if you're a hunter or even an early morning hiker, you experience the wings of the dawn. Here's the idea. If you're a hunter and you get up early or you get up uh, to go do a hike and you want to see the sunrise, you've got to do this thing as a hunter, because you got to get there while the the animals are moving. You got to get there before the hunters, other hunters get there too, uh, to find that almighty buck. And as you're there, it's freezing cold at this time of year, right? You get there and it's kind of fun because you're peering into the darkness and you're looking for something moving and you see a stump and you think it's a buck, but it's not a buck, it's just a stump. And so you can't wait for more light And finally, it starts to come. You see the sky starting to fill. You see the clouds turning red underneath with this beautiful sunrise that you know is coming, but it's not there yet. And man, you want it to come because you're freezing. You peer into the distance and you see the glowing, growing light, like probably behind Mount Spokane or maybe even behind Micah Peak. And it's there, but not quite. And then all of a sudden, It sparks. All of a sudden, the sun crests the hill and the sun rays blast across the treetops. They bounce across the uh, brook below you and glance across your gun into your eyes and you're just like, I'm blinded by, finally, the sunlight. That's the wings of the dawn. It's the very first image of the light cresting the hill for us. That's the speed of light, essentially, is what that is. As fast as light can travel, that is past you, That's where God is at, too. If I take the wings of the morning, the wings of the dawn, if I could travel the speed of light, you know what? I can't flee God. And imagine that you're in Israel, potentially. Some people here I know have been to Israel. And say that you're facing the east. You're oriented to the east, which is where we get the term orient. You're facing where the sun is going to rise. Possibly, depending on where you're standing, the Mount of Olives is before you, and the sun is going to crest. And the moment it crests and it blasts across and you're facing to the east, I don't even know which way. Is this the east? I don't even know where I'm at right here. But imagine that this is the east. The sun is going to rise there and shoot all the way over to the west. What's in the west? What's behind you if you're in the east, in the Middle East, if you're in Israel? The Mediterranean Sea. That's what he says there too. Even if... I could go to the uttermost parts of the sea, if I could go to the depths of the sea, again, east and west, if I could go to the beginning of the sunlight in the east all the way to where the sun sets in the west down into the remotest part of the sea, God is there too. I can't escape him. No matter how high, no matter how low, no matter how far wide or how far to the edge, I can't escape him. And he's also everywhere in between. God is still there. Reminds me of Jeremiah twenty three twenty three. Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Can a man hide himself hide in hiding places so I don't see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord. Jeremiah twenty three twenty three. God is everywhere. We can no, go no place and not find our God there, no matter how high or low, how far east or how far west. God is everywhere there. Our God truly is everywhere. That's encouraging in times of difficulty to know know that he's there for sure. It's encouraging. If maybe you're traveling to strange places, you have to go to a different location and you're not sure what's there, all sorts of unknowns, all sorts of potential problems and challenges, God is there. Uh, Maybe it's understanding or, or trying to find direction in life. God is there. His right hand can lead you and guide you. And some people, and I have to count myself as one of those, can sometimes struggle with this knowledge of God. Okay, God knows everything, and God is everywhere. Well, if that's the case, then why would he let such and such a thing happen? Why would he allow this particular problem to happen in my family? Or why would he allow that particular issue with my body? If God is everywhere and knows everything, well, great, but I've got a lot of problems in my life. Maybe this isn't very comforting. Maybe people are discouraged with who you are physically. You might feel you're too tall or too short or too thin or too wide. Well, if that's a struggle for you, this next part is a fantastic comfort. Verses 13 and following. Again, this is a passage that conveys a basic idea. 13 through 18 is God created you. So first we saw that God knows you, that God surrounds you. Here in 13 through 18, God created you. Let me read this again. And notice all the words about God's creation of us. You formed my inward ports. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them this idea of forming the inward parts it literally is possessing the kidneys god is possessing the kidneys of the psalmist well that sounds kind of weird Well, in the Hebrew culture, that's the seat of emotions. This is where you felt things. This is where you emoted. If you loved somebody or if you were afraid or if you were scared or if you're nervous, sometimes we still feel that. We feel that deep down inside of us, right? It's a sort of component of us that we can't touch, we can't feel, and yet God put that together. He was able to build that. Not only was he able to build our innards that we can't touch, he built it in the most crazy place, in the mother's womb which also you can't go to, right? As crazy as that is, and the psalmist is trying to say, God can do everything. God can do anything. How crazy is this that even before I came out of my mother's womb, even before I walked and talked, God built me exactly how he wanted me to be built. Seed of emotions. It's an idea in this culture to understand that it's impossible for them to see those inward parts unless there's death. You realize that? They didn't have x-rays. They didn't have pictures. Uh, they would, for sure, they would slaughter animals and they would understand the insides of those animals and things like that. But for people, you wouldn't know what the inside of somebody looked like until they were dead. Well, here it's life. Before I was even alive, God built me, knit me together intricately. Job expresses something similar in Job 10.8. Job 10.8 says, Thy hands fashioned and made me altogether. together. And wouldst thou destroy me? Verse 9 Remember now that thou hast made me as clay, and wouldst thou turn me into dust again? Didst thou not pour me out like milk, and curdle me like cheese, clothe me with skin and flesh, and knit me together with bones and sinews? Thou hast granted me life and loving kindness, and thy care has preserved my spirit. It was not merely a chemical soup of genetic information being passed and combined and cells duplicated on their own in the mother's womb. No, oh, it's more than that. The embryo is clearly, even as you see here, not a lump of tissue to be discarded, removed, or aborted. God's hand was intimately involved in your creation in the womb. Uh, we see many times throughout Scripture, know that life happens in the womb. That's when life exists. It's not outside of that. This is definitely, clearly life. God's hand was intimately involved in your life there. Think about your body a little bit. Go ahead look at your hand. Try to make a fist. Do what you can with your hand. Look at this. You got 27 different bones in your hand. All the ligaments, all of the skin and the wrinkles and things like that, and probably even the scars. Science can't make something as intricate as the human hand. You might be able to make something that's stronger with grip and can move maybe even a little bit faster, but nothing that has the dexterity of our simple hand. God built that. God knew that. And God intricately wove that for each and every one of you in his time. Nothing, I think, is as mysterious or amazing as the human body. And I work with machines, I work with vehicles, I work with parts and stuff like that. Nothing is as amazing as the human body and what the body can do. Wonderful are God's works. You just need to learn from the psalmist to let your soul know it very well. Realize that God formed you. He weaved you. He fashioned you. He designed you like a potter designs a clay vessel. You're essentially how he wanted you to be. Now, uh, let's put aside the discussion about physique and diet and making yourself better and stronger and faster and stuff like that, like body sculpting. The core of who you are is who God wants you. The quirks included some of the strengths that you have as well as the weaknesses that you have, the, the, the things that make you uniquely you. Even those weaknesses have a purpose. In God's plan. You've probably heard of William Carey. You've understood. The great missionary to India, he's uh, regarded and called the father of modern missions. He started as a simpler cobbler, you know, pounding shoes together and working that, but God put a huge heart on him to reach the nations, to go and preach the gospel to other people, and particularly God led him to India. In his ministry in India, he led something over 700 people to the Lord through his ministry, He also translated the Bible, not simply from English into one other language, but six other languages. That is a huge feat for an individual to do that. He created schools and seminaries there in India. We understand his ministry. What is maybe less understood for us or for you is his sister, Polly. Anybody heard of Polly, Carrie? His sister. She was an invalid. She was able to do very little in her life other than simply eat and sleep. But there were some things she was able to do. She was able to craft beautiful letters. And she did this for Carrie's ministry of 41 years in India. Didn't even ever take a furlough. And she wrote letters to him constantly, encouraging him, supporting him, showing her love for him. And she could also pray. And she did pray every single day. And I think reports are that hourly she was praying for her her, uh, brother crazy because she didn't see him. She didn't have com- communication with him. I mean, we to talk to our missionaries, and they show pictures and vivid things for us to see these people and hear them in their language. She didn't even see all of that, but she prayed, and she prayed fervently and diligently for over 40 years. God did not make a mistake in making Pauli frail. He didn't make a mistake in that because as much as God wanted it, William on the ground doing the ministry there in India. He also wanted Polly on her bed praying and writing beautiful letters to her brother. God used both of those to cause an amazing ministry to happen in India. And if you go there, you still see the impact. You can still read the scriptures and see his work there. God did a powerful work. You know what else encourages me about those weaknesses sometimes and makes them more bearable? It's Verse 17. Look at verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Uh, Sometimes I don't know how to respond when someone says, hey, I was thinking about you the other day. Uh, Or, uh, hey, we were just talking about you because... I have thoughts, and sometimes those aren't positive thoughts about other people. Sometimes I ask the question, well, were they good thoughts or bad thoughts? You know, it was a good thought, Sharon, by the way. You know, I told Sharon, I was just thinking about her the other day. It was good thoughts. Sometimes I'm not sure because I've walked in on people talking about me in a not flattering way, you know, a less than encouraging way. But our loving God is not that way. No, His thoughts about you are precious. His thoughts about you are loving and tender and tender and like a merciful father. Verse 17 and 18, these thoughts are precious to the psalmist. He comprehends God's thoughts of him and he treasures those. These are amazing to me to think that God thinks about me. He loves that God doesn't merely think about him casually, but abundantly. Not just a fleeting thought, but an intense understanding. And the number of God's thoughts of the psalmist are like the grains of the sand, right? Right? I don't like sand. It's coarse and rough and irritating and gets everywhere, right? Go ahead, cue the <laughs> uh, cue the Anakin Skywalker memes. Uh, but I really, I don't like sand. It's kind of annoying and it does get everywhere. It's relentless. Those grains show up everywhere. If you've been to the ocean, you've been to the sea, you've got sand in your ears and in your hair and in your clothes for, it feels like for eternity. For the rest of your life, you're digging out the sand. That's me anyways. But think about the number of, And that's what the psalmist is saying. That sand, as many as those are, as much as the difficulty is of cleaning that up, God's thoughts of me are that many. God's thoughts of me are that consistent. God's thoughts of me are that relentless. Do you have a physical condition or discontentment that you do need to yield to the Lord? Maybe you have to come to the realization God built you with that weakness on purpose. God built you with that weakness so that you would learn like Paul learned God's grace is sufficient for you. God will enable you and encourage you through that. He made you as he desired. How can the pot rebuke the potter for its design? We can't do that. Neither should you rebuke the Lord for the way he has made you. Neither should you despise somebody else for the way that God has made them again, irrespective of our sin actions and the things that we've done that way, but the core of who we are with our personalities and our presence, God knows it and built it. So we see that we have a God that is smart. He knows all about you. We see that we have a God that is fast, can travel the speed of light, and we can't flee from him. We see that he is everywhere around you and that he is strong. He created you. But how do you respond? What do you do with this knowledge? What's, What's our personal response to this? What do we do about a God that knows everything and is everywhere and can do anything? A very interesting response, I think, from David here in Psalm 19. And as I've studied the Psalms over the years, there's always been a difficulty in studying the Psalms because they're so beautiful. I mean, it's like a song, and, and I'm loving this. And It's like, yes, I relate, and that is so fantastic. But then out of nowhere, David says something like this. Oh, God, that you would slay the wicked. Oh, God, men of bloodshed, depart from me. I just wish that you would take my enemies and slaughter them. And we're like, where did that come from? I I thought that I'm supposed to like turn my other cheek. I thought that I'm supposed to love other people like Jesus loves them. Where does this come from? Why is this so prevalent in the Psalms? David had a heart like God, right? He had a God-like heart. And as he has this God-like heart, he loves what God loves, and he hates what God hates. And in this situation, we don't know the situation, why David wrote Psalm 139 specifically. Don't know who his specific enemies are at this time, but you know his enemies over his life, Goliath, right? Philistines, all of these other people who were absolutely wicked and reviled against our God and against David's God and against David. And so as he loves God and understands God's heart, he also loves what God loves and he hates what God hates. He hates the evil around him and he, he hates the evil that is trying to suppress and oppress God's people. And so David prays a righteous prayer a holy prayer, a prayer that is pleasing to God, that God would slay the wicked, men of bloodshed. They would depart from him. He hated what God hated, and that were these enemies of God. And as he reflects on these enemies, I think it's very telling that his response is that he's painfully aware of his own shortcomings as well. He was aware of the times that he had said or done bad things. And as we see God in our life understanding this, we need to also understand the times in our life where he sees everything. Everything we have done, everything we have said, every place we have been, both good and bad. And you know what David's response is? Very interestingly, he says this. Verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. He gently, patiently, and faithfully asked God to search him. Ironically, that's the same word as in verse 1. Search me and know me. God has already searched him and known him. He asked God to know him. The same word as in verse 2. But now he welcomes that loving probing into his heart. He invites God to have free reign into who he is, into his presence. And he says, God, search me and know me. Have free reign in my life. Reveal to me any way that is despicable to to you. He loved God so much. David did. As the psalmist, and he wanted to be so near to God that he didn't want anything to separate him from his God. God there's any way in me that is wrong, any grievous way in me, remove it, that I may be led in the way of righteousness with you. This understanding of God's knowing everything and being everywhere and able to do anything, well, it has some responses to it. Obviously, it should purify us. It should cause us to pause if we're tempted to sin in a particular way or do something uh, unpleasing to the Lord. It should cause us to stop and not do those such things, right? Uh, If God is everywhere, and if he sees everything, and he knows everything, that should be very cathartic and purifying for us, for sure. But it should also embolden you. Not only the negative, stop doing the bad things, but embolden you. If God is with me, be like William Carey and attempt great things for God pursue some fantastic things. Uh, Go out of your way to talk with somebody who doesn't know the Lord. You know, do something significant in that way. Take a leap of faith in something, in a service or a way of uh, handling your finances. Let's see how big this God really is. If he does know everything and if he can do everything, let's see that. Let's, Let's test this maybe through prayer. I've got this person who's resistant to the gospel. Let's pray this person to salvation. I've got this challenge in my life. I've got this sin that continues to beset me. Let's ask God to uh, reveal this, to reveal this and to expose this in a sense in my life and cause me to overcome this. Pursue boldness with God. One last thought as we think about this. If God is everywhere, if God can do anything, and if you can never be in the darkness uh, where God doesn't see you, how would this impact your prayer life? Let me encourage you to pray in this way. Yeah, We understand prayer. We have prayer meetings and we get together and we kind of, with our youth group, we go through different ways of prayer like we talk about this acts method. You know, adore God and confession to God and thanksgiving to God and supplication. And that's, that's good. We want to have the prayer discipline where we live life in a disciplined manner. But maybe think about this. Think about this. Maybe pray at the speed of thought. God can keep up. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you're overwhelmed with so many things. You've got so many people in your life that you want to pray for coming up to the holidays and you're going to see all these people. What if you just think all of those thoughts to God with a heart of love and care without going through all of the steps? God will hear that. That can be some amazing communion with God in that way. Pray at the speed of thought. And sometimes those prayers are so passionate that God will answer Think of Peter, right? He's sinking in the ocean. He doesn't say, okay, first I've got to adore Jesus for how good he is to me. I've got to confess my sin. No, he says, Jesus, save me. And Jesus does. He reaches out and saves him. Sometimes, friends, that's the way we have to pray. Sometimes we're in, in, in a situation, in a conversation that's not going very well, and it's a confrontation, and you're trying to win somebody's heart over uh, for whatever reason, and it's not going super well until so you pray. Oh God, please guide this. Or you feel the rage in your own self boiling up in a reaction. You feel like you're supposed to not act out the things that you're about ready to act out. God, please suppress me. Help me in this moment. If God is everywhere and if God sees everything and he knows your thoughts before you even speak them, pray that way. Pray that way. Also, the things in your life about God that maybe you're not comfortable to say out loud. God knows him, right? You're not going to surprise him. God, I'm pretty discouraged about this situation. I'm really not liking how things are working out here. I'm really not liking this trial. It's really difficult. Tell him. He knows. Confess it and talk through it. He's not surprised by it. He's like, oh, really? Wow, I didn't think that you wouldn't like that painful issue that I put there on purpose in your life to turn to me. That's exactly what you're supposed to do. Take that to him in prayer. Pray like he knows everything, like he hears everything, but that his gentle hand is out for you, not to hurt you, not to squelch you, not to shove you, to comfort you, to lead you, to guide you, and to protect you. Pray in that way. What a beautiful psalm. You love this psalm. There's so many other things that we could have said about this psalm, but hopefully as you finish here, think about how you can pray to a loving God who is always around you. Allow him to search you and know your heart, to try you and know your anxious thoughts, even as we prepare for communion, asking God to work in our lives that way too. Let's pray. Lord, I love the beauty of your word. I love the beauty of the psalmist here and his expression so uh, vivid about his knowledge of you and your knowledge of us that you surround us, and that is a comforting way. And we could just simply say, you know everything, but instead we express that you know our deepest thoughts. We could simply say that you are everywhere, but our psalmist says, east to west, high to low, dark or light, you're everywhere. And so, Lord, we express our love to you and our thankfulness to you for your word. Uh, and I do pray that our prayers would be different. Our understanding of even our own bodies would be marked by your truth and that you would cause us to worship you, our King and our God, and all we do.